Good morning, church. We are going to be in Exodus 32 today. That's what you just heard Heather read the first 20 verses of. We're going to work our way through the entire chapter. If you were here last week, you may be asking yourself or me in your head, what about chapter 31? Are we just going to skip over chapter 31? No. Chapter 31 deals with the actual assembly of the tabernacle, the beginning of the work that God has been prescribing in the chapters that we've been in for several weeks. And so we're going to wait to touch on chapter 31 until we arrive at chapter 35 through 40, because the last six chapters of Exodus are essentially a repeat. It's good news because God's people do what he told them to do, but we've already read the instructions, so we'll be able to deal with that in one week. Um, I'm really excited to be back with you today. I want to say thank you to you if you were here last week or if you joined us online. Uh, Your patience with my voice, um, it ended up going better than I thought it might. It never gave out all the way, but I know it was a little bit scratchy, a little bit odd. So thank you very much, uh, and thanks for being here and being here this week as well. If you haven't already, um, it will help you to go to Exodus chapter 32. We won't read all of the first 20 verses. Heather just read that. We will read the majority of the remainder of the chapter. So we'll try to interact with the broad concepts, follow the narrative, and draw out what it is that God has for us today. But while you head that direction, um, I want to tell you a story that I think will ring true for you and has quite a bit to do with where we're going to go in God's word today. Before my wife and I moved to Alaska in 2019, we lived in Kentucky. And neither of us is from Kentucky. Uh, We spent some time there while I attended seminary. And I also was on staff at a church for a brief time. Uh, That church was a small country church, and it was really fun. Some of the best people that I've probably ever met in my life. Very open, very loyal, very accepting of other people, really generous. But though all those things are good, there was something about that church that never really made sense to us. Even today, if I were to go back, there's sort of a question mark for me. And I'll tell you what it is, and I'll explain why it's confusing. What I couldn't understand was the presence of one particular trophy case in the church. A trophy case. Not a little trophy case that holds one trophy. Not on somebody's desk or in the youth room as a joke from a Mario Kart relay or something like that. This was a full-size oak and glass trophy case. Like so big that several men would have to move it together to get it gone. And if you can go back in time with me just a little bit, maybe four or five years before my wife and I arrived there, the church had just built a new building. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between what we were going through there in Kentucky and where True North is right now, navigating the merger with Muldoon Road and having to renovate and clean rooms out, but kind of feeling this cultural collision between two very different versions of the same church. And so when they built this new building, it was modern in every way that you would expect. And it was connected to the old building. And because we were in Kentucky, one of the oldest parts of the United States, the church was already well over 100 years old at the time that they put up this new building, a gymnasium that they started to meet in. They had an old sanctuary, but they were too big as a church to meet in there anymore. And the place, the seam, where these two buildings connected was a lobby. Just a simple room similar to the sanctuary lobby that we use here at First Baptist. And in that lobby were two things. One was a guest welcome center, which makes sense. You would hope that that would be one of the first things people would see when they arrive at the church. And the other was this enormous trophy case. And this bothered me. That people would come to our church for the first time. The very first thing they would see wasn't a Bible. It wasn't even necessarily a friendly face greeting them. It wasn't a cross. It wasn't even an out-of-context Bible verse on the wall. That would have even been better, I think. It was a trophy case full of trophies, mostly softball trophies, church softball trophies, some bowling trophies, a handful of trophies for state fair champion jams and puddings and pies and things like that. And so one day I just decided to ask the question. I could tell that this was important to the church. I didn't know why. 
It didn't make sense to me that it would be the very first thing people would see, and frankly, it was kind of in the way. It was so big you had to walk around it to get into the doors that took you into our sanctuary. And so I raised the question. I found somebody who I thought I could trust, and I said to them, what's the deal with the trophy case? And immediately, I won't tell you who this person is, because some of those people still follow our church online, but this person's demeanor changed completely. I mean, they, they went from normal to like, trophy, the trophy case? We left the building we were in. We walked across the parking lot to where the offices were. We went into my office, locked the door, sat down where nobody could see us through the window, and the person said, we don't talk about the trophy case. (laughs) Don't you know we don't talk about the trophy case? Nobody talks about the trophy case. Tears have been shed for that trophy case. Voices have been raised. Memberships have been moved because of the trophy case. It was a sacred cow. You guys, it was a thing that we in church leadership know a lot about. Every church has these things. Things that you can't touch, things that you can't change, things that represent something to the people who are a part of the church but might not have immediate spiritual value uh, on the surface. The trophy case and all the trophies in it was just an example at that church. And I'm exaggerating a little bit about how big of a deal it was, but not much. Mostly, I'm not exaggerating. Mostly, it was that big of a deal. These kinds of sacred cows come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's hymnals. When the day finally comes that a traditional church takes the hymnals out of the pews, that can be offensive. Sometimes it's the pews themselves. In a church that's had pew benches for 100 plus years, when those go out, people get upset. It could even be whether the choir wears choir robes. Some of those make sense, right? They're things that we would expect, but others might surprise you, like where we hang the pictures of all the previous pastors in the church. Like they left, right? We get that. They're not here anymore, yet we still feel like we need to honor them. Or what to name the youth group. Or whether or not the church should continue to give money to a ministry that closed its doors 20 years ago. These are not just made up examples. I've had a front row seat to all of these church fights in my life. These are sacred cows. Sacred cows are idols to us. And they're not regular idols, they're not like the idols that we all know that we have, the idols that we would write down if we were at summer camp and there was a big wooden cross and the youth speaker said, you got to write one thing down, you're going to nail it to the cross and leave it at camp. Something would come to mind, right? Our sacred cows are not like that. They're very different. They're things, idols that church people blindly embrace. They are a category of idol for which a church person is willing to do all kinds of very un-Jesus-like things in Jesus' name to other people who also claim to love Jesus. Sacred cows are the kinds of idols that we carry into gatherings like this one. They're the kinds of idols that warp our minds and our hearts so that we have such a strong emotional response when people get too close to these sacred cows that we react in ways that would be embarrassing if we weren't so blinded by our passion that we actually disassociate from our own reactivity. What what I'm trying to say to you, in other words, is that these are the kinds of idols that you cannot imagine yourself actually defending in a way that explicitly dishonors Jesus. You laughed at the examples that I gave you just a minute ago. And yet, we all know what we're talking about here because that's exactly what we do. Though we wouldn't believe that we'd done it even if someone told us, we cling to sacred cows so ferociously that our reactions when they are threatened are primal, visceral, and violent. Exodus 32 tells us what happens when we latch on to a sacred cow. This is the way that I would define that. When we have formed a stronger emotional or spiritual bond with a thing within the church than we have formed with Jesus himself. 
That's what's in play today. And if that feels like a category that you can dismiss yourself from, you either haven't been a part of the same church long enough or you're not old enough, but this is a temptation that is coming for you or one that you have had to navigate at some point. If you can, look now at Exodus 32, verse 1. We're just going to read verse 1 and talk a little bit about what's going on. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, a little bit of context for you if you were to go back nine chapters to Exodus 24, the end of chapter 24 tells us that Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days. That's the delay that the people are sensing. When that happened, the people gathered themselves together and they came to Aaron, who is Moses' brother, who is functioning as sort of an interpreter and almost a priest. This is the same Aaron that we've been reading about for weeks and weeks. The guy who's going to be Israel's great high priest, the man who's supposed to be made clean, clean enough to go into God's presence himself. Does he meet that criteria now? Let's find out. They said to him, up, which is not a friendly way to talk to anybody, make us God's In other words, form for us something that we can treat like gods that will go before us. And as for this Moses, I think they can almost anticipate Aaron's rebuttal here, right? He's going to go, wait, 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 wait. Moses is coming back. They already have an argument ready for that. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That's their excuse. We waited long enough. The timing isn't good for us. We're uncomfortable. So make us something we can worship. And what did Aaron do? He did it. Right? You heard Heather read that a minute ago. Aaron made a calf out of solid gold. And as he does this, as soon as the people see it, it's like they are uh, arriving at a tailgate, is the way that I understand this. And they're bumping into people that they haven't seen in a while, and they're really excited because their team has a really good chance to win the game. That's the energy that exists in these people. They're yelling at each other, hey, these are our gods. This is it. We finally have something to worship. Which is wild, Because they have God to worship. They have had God to worship. The entire time they have been anything other than slaves, God has been near to them. And yet, so quickly, they move their attention to this thing. And I think Aaron kind of tries to cover his rear end because he comes up with this little altar idea. He's like, maybe I can just stick this little altar between the people and the calf and it'll kind of intercept the worship and we'll still maybe kind of sort of be worshiping God. Like maybe God won't be mad if if we can get the people to at least look at the altar to Yahweh that's between them and their calf. But because this is a sacred cow, literally, in this story, should we really be surprised when the people find a way to protect their idol? Even in such close proximity to God, should we really be surprised when they find a way to treasure the thing that they really want? Even in God's house, even under the name of the worship of God. That's Aaron's plan, and his plan is a total failure. The people wake up the next day and they run Aaron over. This big plan to have a feast to Yahweh does not go the way that he plans it at all. They use the altar, but they don't do anything about the calf, and they love it. They're so happy. They're so excited. They're full of appreciation for this little metal animal that a man made for them yesterday. So excited, so happy to go through a bunch of empty and meaningless worshipy acting while they cling to the thing they really want, the thing that they obviously don't think they can live without. So church, I'll ask you, can you see in Exodus 32 our own fierce loyalties to things that don't matter? The fight you feel when someone is in your seat in the sanctuary or the fear that you sense when no one wants to come to your ministry anymore a ministry that oftentimes no one's wanted to come to for years, that they've only gone to because they're afraid of how you'll react if they don't show up. These are the ways that we embrace this same mindset. Exodus 32 is what we sound like when we throw fits about changes that we don't like at what you and I prefer to refer to as my church. 
It's not my church. Maybe you don't know this. It's not your church either. This is God's church and the works of God's hands in Exodus, the rules and the order for worship, the order for daily life that God gave to Israel in the law, even the Israelites themselves are also not their own. This is not my church. The Israelites were not their own people. This is not my seat. The Israelites did not come up with their own laws. It wasn't their way of living. These are not my pews. These are not my choir robes. These are not my hymnals. And God's people, even the works of God's hands, did not belong to them. Yet what happened? They didn't like God's way. They were upset. Forty days is too long, God. It's too long. Your timing isn't good, God. We don't even know if we can trust you anymore. Where is this Moses guy anyway? I love the way they talk about him like they don't know him. This is textbook for how people in God's church distance themselves from leaders that they have a petty feud with. They go from needing help, wanting attention, loving the care, loving the shepherding to, oh, that guy, I don't even really know, I don't really know him at all. Who is he? Where's he been? Textbook. They decide in this, in this chapter of the Bible, they decide that they're going to take into their own hands their own will and they're going to throw a fit until Aaron caves in and gives them what they want. So I'll ask you another question. Does that work? Let's be self-evaluative here. Let's step out of the narrative for a minute and look in the mirror. When we make up our minds that one little part of God's plan is actually God's plan, and we start to die on that hill, what happens to us? When our emotional or spiritual loss, having had a thing taken away from us, when that then leads us to bond ourselves to a physical thing in the church, because that's often the source material for these sacred cows, We feel a thing torn away. We feel a thing taken from us, and so we try to replace it with something that represents the thing that we lost. We have a spouse who we used to sit next to in the same seat on every Sunday, and now nobody better touch that seat because our spouse is gone, but the seat remains. That's how we develop these kinds of sacred cows. Sometimes it's a favorite song or a kind of feeling that we used to get at some previous period in the life of the church. But the question is, does that actually help? Has it ever helped you? If our objective is to be like Jesus, if it's all about Jesus, does this make us like Jesus? Or if we're wounded and those wounds are what drive us into this kind of idolatry, do those idols heal us? Do we grow? Do our sacred cows ever liberate us? Can our sacred cows ever liberate us? Is a question that we should be asking all the time. It's the question that God's people have asked and tried to answer wrongly on their own. Look at verse 7. God responds to what his people have done. The Lord said to Moses, Yahweh spoke to Moses and he said, go down, leave. For your people, funny that he says to Moses, these are your people now. It's kind of like when mom and dad are like, your kid is out of control. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have now corrupted themselves. Yahweh is not happy. He is irate. Have you ever been with your best friend when they get off work and they've had a really exasperating day? You know what this feels like? Maybe your spouse or your roommate comes in the door and they've just had it up to here with their boss or that one coworker that just won't leave them alone, that is so predictable and irritating and frustrating and goes out of their way to cause trouble. This is the tone that I hear in God's words in verses 8, 9, and 10 when I read this. It's like God is saying, can you believe these people? And I should have known better. It's just like them to do this. God is saying to Moses, he quotes back to Moses what the people have been saying to themselves. God's been down there and with Moses at the same time. He's saying to Moses, can you believe that they thought that they could call this calf a God and that I wasn't going to hear about it? Can you believe them? And then we get this amazing glimpse of the personality of God the Father when he tells Moses to leave him alone. 
so that he can go down and handle his business. He says to Moses, literally, like I think God is probably pacing back and forth across the top of Sinai at this point. I can imagine he's cracking his knuckles, he's loosening his shoulders up, he's getting ready to go in down the mountain to those Israelite people and mess them up. And almost as an afterthought, he says to Moses, when I get back, I'll tell you the plan. You need to stay here and we're just going to start over with you. I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to do it with these people anymore. And then, <laughs> this moment that I can't really overstate to you, that is unlike anything that we've seen in the Bible, in the whole story of redemption up to this point, as God is walking away, Moses has the audacity to say, wait, hold on, Yahweh, just a minute. If, if, I, could just, if I could just offer my perspective it would be better for you not to do this. And I, it's not lost on me. It shouldn't be lost on you. Moses is still using Yahweh's personal name. This is the end of 40 days, the greatest spiritual retreat anybody's ever gone on. Moses has been soaking in the presence of Yahweh. And it's out of that, it's out of that inner person being transformed by being in God's presence that he says to God, hold on, this doesn't seem to fit the you that I've been with for this month plus of my life. I think this might be a once-in-human-history kind of prayer. I'm not sure Moses would have even spoken up if he'd not been soaking in God's love and glory for 40 days. But you need to know this, because I've heard this passage wrongly taught to cocky young people in college who think they're know-it-all theologians. Moses is not impudent. He's not cocky at all. He doesn't think he knows better than Yahweh, so don't misunderstand this. Moses is not a model for self-righteous people to pray arrogant and overconfident prayers in an attempt to somehow humble God or change his mind. Moses cries out from a part of himself that is more in touch and more in tune with Yahweh than anybody has been since God walked with Adam and Eve in Eden. When he says in verse 11, your people, there's that, he's sending it back to Yahweh. He's like, not my people. I didn't pick these people. I led them, but it was your. Your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with what? Great power and a mighty hand. What a loaded phrase. What does Moses mean? What is he remembering when he says this? He's not just blowing smoke. He's remembering the plagues of Egypt. You did these plagues, God. You personally humiliated the, ten, the top ten most beloved, most famous gods in Egypt. You took them down one by one. And what about after that? What about after the Exodus, the miracles in the desert? The Red Sea crossing, is that not enough by itself, God, for you to remember the work that you put in, the way that you were willing to go against the laws of nature that you set up to set your people free? What about the spring at Mara, where God's people are running out of water? They're going to die soon if they don't get something to drink, and God provides a way for the bitter water that's undrinkable to become sweet and good for them. He saves their lives. My favorite story from that period of time is when God took on the judgment of his people, when he had Moses actually strike him with the staff of judgment at the rock of Horeb. Moses is appealing to those things. This isn't empty platitudes, and it's not because Moses is scared that his little ministry is about to fall apart. He is communicating from an intimate, deeply connected place with the Spirit of God. And he's saying to Yahweh, you are not this. You are love. Your forgiveness, your mercy, your patience. You put off the judgment. Discipline, certainly. These are your people. Well within the bounds of, of what Moses thinks is possible and, frankly, what's going to happen at the end of this chapter. But destruction, absolute wiping the slate clean and starting over, Moses appeals to two things, two things that Yahweh has told Moses over and over that he cares about. First, the belief of the Egyptians. Moses says, uh-uh, this is what the Egyptians are waiting for. This is the testimony that will totally topple all the work that you've done in their hearts. They're going to mock you, and they're going to mock your people. 
And second, the covenant promises that God made with Abraham. He says, remember, from the first moment that you met me at this mountain, 40 plus years ago, when you said to me, you introduced yourself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, are you not still the same God? Did you stop remembering at some point? I know that you're mad, this is bad, but relent. Place your anger somewhere else for now and choose mercy. Please, God, choose mercy for these people. And you know what? Yahweh does it. He relents. It's amazing to me. This is the best and purest prayer that Moses can pray because it's made up of Yahweh's own words to Moses. Moses isn't writing great prose. This isn't an incredibly persuasive article that he put together, and it's not a product of his creative writing classes. It's an appeal to Yahweh's character. It's a product of communion with Yahweh. This is the kind of state of mind and state of heart that Jesus taught us to pray from when he said, and this is just an example, there's many verses like this in the Gospels, but in Mark 11, Jesus said, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. How is that possible? Not because you've become very persuasive on the divine level, but because you're finally praying for the kinds of things that God will do anyway. We become changed as we are in God's presence and our prayers become better, not because we're smarter, older, or wiser, but because we are more Jesus-y, if you want to borrow a word from me. They asked him, teach us to pray, and he did, yet we don't pray that way. We just would like another lesson later, maybe, that's more comfortable for us. He says, be with me and then ask, and you'll get, you'll have. So in verse 15, Moses comes out of that amazing experience. He's just contributed to a different perspective on who God is and what he's going to do, and he comes down the mountain. Spiritual retreat over, out of silence and solitude, back into the real world, and verse 19 tells us that as soon as Moses is within eyeshot of the camp, he realizes just how badly, and forgive my relatively gentle French here, but how badly the proverbial crap has hit the fan. It's bad. It's ugly down there. So what does Moses do? He breaks the stone tablets. He throws them out of his hands, because he's so angry. This is everything that we've been reading for the last four weeks. I know you've seen the Charlton Heston film, probably against your will more than once. This is not just the Ten Commandments, five on each stone tablet. These are written front and back with all of the law that God has been giving to Moses. This is detailed instructions. It's significant. It's not easy to replace. It's not the kind of thing you prop up in front of the courthouse. These people are going to be pouring over the language of this thing to try to learn to live in sync with God. It's a product of their relationship and their desire to be in relationship. And now it's gone. There's not another copy. How is that justifiable? Well, I don't think we can probably blame Moses. (laughs) If you're standing where he's standing and you see these people having totally rejected God, do you really believe that they're going to have any interest in any of the stuff on these tablets? Are they going to care? Are they looking for anything that God's trying to provide them with? No. At the first opportunity, they hijack the whole thing and make it about themselves And frankly, at least in an illusory way, they make it about the gods of Egypt. The presence of a bull is all over Egyptian god worship. So for them to pick this idol specifically, it's not because they just love cows. It's the way their hearts were formed and trained to worship, and they're wrong. Moses is awesome here. I love this. He does not mind crashing the party. He grabs the idol, he grinds it up into gold dust, and then throws it out across the reservoir in camp, whatever lake or pond they've been drinking from. And then he makes them line up, and they have to drink it. Like I can hear Moses saying, you want your idol so badly? Here, take it. You can have it all. You can put it into your body. You don't have to worship it from out here. You can ingest it and see how much good it does for you. And I think it's beautiful. I don't say that in a sadistic way. I don't like Moses the bully. I don't think he's being one. I think Moses is the master of imagery. 
Maybe when you're the guy who has to hand deliver the 10 plagues, you learn a thing or two about figurative language, but the image here is clear. You want your idol, you can have it, and it's such great commentary on human movements. You want to be a part of something big, something meaningful, you can literally grind this up and take it into your body and see how much good it does you. And then we get to my favorite part of this passage. In a way that only Moses is uniquely qualified to write down, we get this private conversation between Moses and his brother Aaron, the guy who made the calf. I think this is probably happening to the side as all these long lines of Israelite people are waiting their turn to come and eat humble pie, or in this case, drink golden Kool-Aid. And this is what happens in verse 21, okay? Moses says to Aaron, great question. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? He's giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt. It's not even in Moses' mind that Aaron willingly went along with this. No way. He just finished hearing God wax eloquent for 40-plus days about all of the work that Aaron's going to do in the temple to lead God's people in worship. Surely, Moses thinks, my brother did not facilitate this idolatry. Well, Aaron likes that version of events, so he's going to try to lean into that narrative. Verse 22, he says, oh, wait, 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 wait. Cool it, man. You know, don't be angry. It's no big deal, okay? You know the people. You know that they're set on evil. No surprises here. For they said to me, make us gods, gods who will excuse me, go before us. And they also said, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Apparently, from Aaron's perspective, those are pretty good excuses. Because he says in verse 24, so I responded with, Moses is coming back and God is faithful and will wait, right? No. <laughs> At least he's honest. He says, I said, let any who have gold take it off. And you know what, Moses? I know they love their gold jewelry, but they did it anyway. They took it all off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. What? Do you hear echoes of Genesis 3? God comes to Adam. What happened? The woman that you gave me gave me the fruit. I don't, I, the fruit just was in my mouth when I woke up this morning. And I, I'm just, I don't know. It wasn't my fault. Aaron is dodging this thing so hard. You probably don't know this because you're not a Messianic Jew. But in the rabbinic tradition, this is a favorite verse of the rabbis because they believe that it's true. They actually think that Aaron didn't touch the calf and it did magically come out of the fire. And therefore, he and all the priests after him and all the rabbis somehow didn't sin along with the rest of the people, which is pretty significant moral gymnastics if you ask me. As unbelievably ridiculous as Aaron's response is, don't laugh so hard that you miss what Aaron is implying. This is big. This is significant. Aaron is not just saying that this is all not his fault. That's obvious, right? That jumps off the page at you. He's sidestepping. He's dodging. He doesn't want to get in trouble. Big brother's back and things are going to go badly. But if you throw something into a fire haphazardly, and when the fire dies down, out comes an image of something very real and very significant to you. Who are you implying is to blame for that? Maybe it's not obvious. Aaron is hinting that something supernatural happened in the fire. Aaron, the guy we've been reading about in excruciating detail for over four chapters, Aaron, the great high priest of Israel, is hoping that if he can just make things seem mysterious enough, God might accept that Yahweh actually had a hand in the creation of the golden calf. That's what he's hinting at. And for that reason, Aaron is a textbook example of how churchy, religious people drag their idols into the body of Christ and end up convincing themselves and other people that idol worship is actually God's will. Aaron is the guy who can't embrace Jesus in 2022 because his arms are already so tightly wrapped around his preferred worship style or his favorite Bible translation 
or his children's program of choice. You don't understand, he says. It wasn't my idea. I'm not the bad guy. It was God's will. How well does that work? Is it effective? Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? Is he the guy who's always worried that bad guys are going to take all his stuff away? Sneaking around the church, pointing fingers at the other disciples. How dare you? Who do you think you are? This is mine. You're going to mess it up. Nobody can touch this. There's no better way for kids to learn scripture. There's no better way for people to take communion. Is that the position of our Savior? Is that our rabbi? No. 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 What's sad about this is if you can follow Aaron's pragmatic line of thinking, it actually seems like it's working. Has there ever been a more engaging worship service in Israel than this one? Have the people ever been more excited than this? The people love it. They can't get enough. They gave an offering of more value than the gathered believers had ever seen before. The gold was significant. So pick your practical metric, church. Attendance was up. The bank accounts were full. People were smiling and excited. They were telling their friends. Absolutely all of them were participating, and all of them, including their leaders, were 100% wrong. And yet it looked so good. It seemed like it was going so well. So how does that happen? Because it doesn't stop at the end of Exodus 32. It exists today, right now, in churches like this one. What forms us in a way that we become drawn to sacred cows? We all know the human condition predisposes us to sin. We know that our hearts and minds have been rightly called idol factories by great theologians of the past. But where does the magnetism come from? What draws us to the kinds of idols that we feel comfortable carrying into God's presence? Idols that we feel fine about setting up right in God's face. How do we become those kinds of people? People who cling so tightly to programs or styles or ideas that frankly come and go really rapidly in church history. To answer that question, I'll finish the story I started earlier. Let's go back to the trophy case at the small church in Kentucky. I think it's a bit of a decoder ring for us in how we fall in love with sacred cows. At that church, prior to their current pastor, there had been 10 pastors in 25 years. That's the beginning of this root of idolatry. And each time that a pastor left, there was a period of at least a year, but usually more like three years, in which the church had to keep going without leadership. Without the kind of leadership that they preferred, decisions still had to be made, bills still had to be paid. And so the church turned to its deacons and they turned to their committees to try to keep the wheels moving. And that's not wrong, but these were hard times. When a pastor leaves, the church rarely gets larger as a result. It typically shrinks immediately, the very next Sunday. And all of the other metrics shrink with it. The giving, the involvement, the love, the excitement, the passion. New pastors who came along had a hard time winning over the trust of the people. And some didn't even stay long enough to be thought of as a friend to the congregation, let alone a a shepherd. In those 25 years, the church needed something to rally around. When division over budget decisions, when division over staff hiring decisions arose, or ministry philosophies arose, the thing that kept the church together and unified was fellowship. It was time spent together, and in central Kentucky, that fellowship happened happened as often as not on a softball diamond or over a steaming pot of award-winning jam. And the trophy case became a sacred cow because it represented the way that the church collectively was trying to deal with its wounds. It was medicine. And for many, that connection, that significance in here, their inner person, so great that they had a real emotional bond to the presence of those trophies. We can do that. We are so oriented around worship, my friends, 
that we can learn to glue our souls to things that can't bear the weight of them. We do it all the time. The trophies, the memories of the good times that those trophies represented, and as sometimes distracting and therapeutic as a city softball championship often was, the emotions were still misplaced. Like all of our sacred cows, these trophies attempted, excuse me, they represented an attempt to replace or at least supplement the work of God in our lives. I'm going to say it to you again. Like all of our sacred cows, all of them, doesn't matter which one you have, they are an attempt to replace the work of God or at least supplement it. We'll just help God out a little bit. God, 95%, 5% softball trophies. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty, I mean, that's a pretty big majority. God, surely he doesn't, he's not upset about that. This is what happened at Sinai. The people got tired of waiting. They became upset. They were wounded. They were hurt. How dare you, Moses? How dare you, God, if you're even there? And so they got together and they made themselves an image that represented all the things they thought God should have been. Present, physical, on time, very willing to let them do whatever the heck they felt like without telling them anything about right and wrong. But it didn't work. It wasn't healing. Moses doesn't come down the mountain to a better, healthier group of people than the ones he left 40 days prior. And if you've ever done insanity or any kind of fad diet, you know 40 days is enough for significant change to happen. You can start or end a habit in that amount of time. And these people have not changed. They are not better. They've not improved. They're not healthier. They're not taking better care of each other. They are worse than they were as a result of their idolatry. And now, with Aaron's flimsy explanation of how it's not really his fault and the people's wickedness on full display, something has to be done. It falls to Moses to take action, to respond to this chaos that has erupted in the camp. If Yahweh is still going to use these people, they have to be made clean again. Not destroyed, but disciplined, cleaned, corrected, changed in a way that this idol worship cannot change them. God's about to do it quickly, rapidly, in one day. There is a price to pay for their sin. And I'm warning you, church, this will be the hardest part of the story. What happens next may be offensive to some of you. It may be confusing. Frankly, it's pretty unnerving. But if you'll go with me, I think you'll see how it resolves in a way that points us to Jesus. Look at verse 25. So Aaron finishes his, his bad explanation, and we don't even get Moses' response. It's probably an eye roll. He didn't want to write down in the Bible. Verse 25, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, and that word in Hebrew is translated a lot of different ways. Basically what it means is not that they broke out of handcuffs, but that they've rejected the law and they're living any which way they want to. The human condition in a nutshell. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. People are mocking them outside of the camp of Israel because of how nasty they've become. Verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, he yelled out, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi, which is the tribe of Aaron, these are the people who will become the priests, they came. They answered the call. One twelfth of the people. I think that's like 8.5% or something like that. It's close to it. Less than 10% of the people come and they say, we're in, we're here. They gathered around him. And Moses said to them, thus says Yahweh, who is your God, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And that's what they did. They killed 3,000 of the people of Israel that day in an attempt to regain control over the riots that had broken out. And after that, God sent a plague. All right, I'm not pulling punches here. This stuff happened. God still disciplines. There is still a penalty to pay. It's not the destruction that the people deserve, but they must be changed. They must be shown and demonstrated that there is a negative that comes with rejecting God. Your life doesn't get better. 
Now, don't misunderstand. Don't read back into Moses' prayer to Yahweh that he was lying. His prayer to Yahweh was genuine. He wanted God to spare the people, and God did. Moses doesn't want their destruction. And Yahweh keeps his commitment to Moses. He chooses not to destroy the people. But when they've willingly embraced wickedness, they've become filthy. They've been contaminated by their own selfishness, and they have to be cleansed. Order has to be restored to the nation in order for the covenant, which was broken when God's people went after the golden calf, in order for that covenant to be renewed. For there to even be an Exodus 34 or the rest of the Bible, this cleansing is necessary. Now, I think in modern terms that Aaron is very similar to weak pastors, weak elders in local churches who have tried to bargain with sin instead of calling sin, sin and rooting it out. God's people in Exodus 32 have left God's word behind, they've left God's plan behind, and they've created something more comfortable for themselves, excuse me, more palatable for themselves. The road back to holiness will not be an easy road to walk because sin has to be judged. And when and where God's people take a soft stance on sin, they haven't really delayed God's judgment. They haven't really diluted God's judgment, though I think this is a very tempting version of Christianity to share with people around us, right? God's not, he doesn't really care that much about that thing, just these other things that you don't do, so you're not going to be upset about that. What God's people have done in this story is they've indicted themselves. They haven't actually helped anybody else. Aaron has only made himself guilty. He has not actually brought a more gentle and easy to accept and palatable form of righteousness. It doesn't exist. Righteousness is righteousness or it's not. Aaron has compromised. He can't lead the people. Yahweh says in verse 34, in the day when I visit my people, I will visit their sin upon them. And what that means is when the time comes for me to punish, it wasn't today. Today was not punishment, it was discipline. When the time comes for me to unload the judgment that humanity deserves, I'm going to do it. And so the question this chapter leaves us with is when is that? Is that like the Kirk Cameron left behind thing at the end with fireballs and angry angels? Is, that, is it coming still? Did it happen when God's people were judged and taken into exile? Is it the sack of Rome and, and the, the burning of Rome by Nero in the days of the early church? Where do we position that on the timeline? I believe that day has already come. I think we are on the other side of the day when God will visit the, the wickedness, the punishment of his people against them, when he will judge what is wrong. I believe that for God's people, for those whom God chooses and those whom choose God, that that day was the day of Jesus' death. I think Jesus said so. In John chapter 17, Jesus opens a, a beautiful prayer to God by saying, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The time. It's here. All through the book of John, there is a theme of the hour has come. The time has come. The kingdom has come. It's now. It's here. You've been waiting for it. You've been anticipating it. Some of you have even been fearing it, and it's arrived. So glorify your son. How does that happen? By killing him and then bringing him back to life, and the son will glorify the father. In the close of Exodus 32, Moses goes back up the mountain to God, and he says to God something that's very similar to the apostle Paul in the New Testament. Moses says to God, if it works for you, God, I know you're angry at these people who've been wrong, would you remove my name from your book? Would you blot my name out of your covenant so that these other people can stay in? Which, wow, I mean, I love you guys, but I'm not sure if I was on the mountain. I don't know. I really like being in God's kingdom. I think it's been the greatest thing ever in my life. Moses says, blot me out to save these people. The gospel comes to you and I in 2022 because Jesus himself was blotted out instead of us. Moses is a type. He's an image. He's a foreshadowing of that. And when Peter preached his first sermon in Acts 3, he told the crowd gathered at Solomon's gate that because of Jesus, Jesus who was traded for Barabbas in the same way that God's people in Exodus 32 traded an idol for God himself, 
because of that Jesus, they can repent and turn back that their sins would be blotted out. Peter's thinking about Moses. Peter's remembering Jesus. Jesus himself sent word to the church by way of the Apostle John in Revelation 3 when he said this, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Because Jesus was blotted out, we never will be. Jesus is God's plan for wicked people. Jesus who is actually better than our idols, even our sacred cows. Jesus, who can heal whatever wounds we carry, even the wounds that drive us toward our favorite idols, deep pain, betrayal, loss, the fear of an unknown future. You know this, but I'll remind you, when we are weak, he is strong. We don't make ourselves better by finding an idol that we think can fix our problems in the short term. When we are at a deficit, when we want so badly to pull a thing into our life and to attribute value to it that it doesn't really have, pick a favorite thing within the church or outside of the church and die on the hill of that thing in defense of it. When we are tempted to do that, we are in a deficit. We are a negative sum in the spiritual grand scheme of things, and that is the moment at which God is at a surplus. That's what he is weak when I am strong, or excuse me, he is strong when I am weak means. That's the whole sum of Christian life, is that when I have less than nothing, God has more than what I need. When we are desperate to find someone or something to devote our lives to so that we might be whole again, Jesus wants nothing more than to transform us into his image. He'll give us the thing we're looking for, and it's him, and then he'll actually change us to become it. We don't have to eat ground-up gold dust mixed with water to try to get our idol into our life. Christ will move in, totally, spiritually, permanently, transformationally. So today, you have a choice. You have the same choice that Israel had. You have the same choice that that small church in Kentucky had. You have the same choice that every Christian must make. You can ignore your wounds, and if you'll do that, you'll be able to keep your sacred cows intact. You can die on those hills. You can have those church fights. You can come to business meetings angry and steamed up and hot under the collar because somebody threatened the thing that you love. Or you can come to Jesus even if you're a Christian, you might have actually moved away from him. You might have taken significant spiritual steps of either apathy, passiveness, or on purpose to distance yourself because you hurt so badly. You can come to him, and what he'll do is he'll heal your wounds. He won't ignore them. He'll deal with them. He'll treat them. And then he'll lead you out of your life where you want to make your own idols over and over again, and he'll give you himself a God worthy of your worship, a God of whom you'll never grow bored, a God who will give to you an eternal kind of life. That's what's on the table. So I want to pray that for you today. I'd invite you to pray with me, and I want to ask God to do that in our hearts, in our minds. Father, we love you. That's why we're here today. But our hands are not really empty, I don't think. They certainly aren't clean. Many of us are clinging to things, holding on to things so tightly that we're scared to death to lose. Maybe it's a denominational affiliation. Perhaps, God, it is a Bible translation. Perhaps it is some theological or philosophical perspective. Maybe it's the practice of our faith or lack thereof. Maybe it's 
a magnetism towards something old school that makes us reject people who are more modern. Maybe it's a magnetism toward modernism that makes us reject the legacy and tradition of those who were faithful previously. But something divides us in some set of two, God. And we need you to build unity in us. We need Ephesians to be true, for you to tear the dividing wall down, and not just among the things that we pick and choose to fight about, but the walls that we build in our hearts that divide us from each other. We need unity. This church, True North Church, needs you supernaturally to create unity in our midst. We are one church in two campuses, two locations, two very different perspectives, God. And things are going well. You've blessed us, but we have no say in this. (laughs) We can't do it. We can't fix it. We can't make it right. We can't bind ourselves to each other. We need you to do that, God. So today I ask you to do two things. One, reveal your mercy and glory to us. If it's been smudged or blurred or unclear in any way today as I've spoken, would you clarify it crystal clear as we sing? And then two, would you give us the faith to respond, to say, okay, God, I will follow. I will take one step today closer to you than I was yesterday. God, build love in us. Stoke a fire that we can't put out, that the world can't put out, that our circumstances and our sadness and all of the things that swirl around us can't touch. We want to be people who are defined by you alone. We trust you to do these things. We cannot do them on our own, God. We need you to be with us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.